joy we have this morning to open the Word of God together. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we are continuing our study of the book of Philippians, and our study has brought us to verses 12 to 18. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18, and the title of this morning's message is Paul's Joy in His Imprisonment. Paul's Joy in His Imprisonment. Let's read this passage of scripture together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice." Now, the key phrase in this passage is what Paul says in verse 18. I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. As we said previously, the book of Philippians is an epistle of joy. Paul writes this epistle to communicate to the Philippian church his joy in his present circumstances. And you'll remember that his present circumstances are not good. Paul is in prison. He has been incarcerated for preaching the gospel of Christ. He is in Rome awaiting a court date which may take his life. And yet in the midst of these difficult circumstances, he writes in verse 18, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. It's almost a defiant statement in the face of circumstances. I will rejoice despite my trials. I will rejoice despite my difficulties. I will rejoice despite whatever the world might throw at me. I will rejoice despite my uncertainty about my future. I will rejoice despite the fact that I am facing possible death. I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This verse communicates Paul's commitment to rejoice no matter what what the circumstances. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The question I had in looking at this passage is what was it that helped Paul to reach this attitude? What was it that undergirded his heart, that shepherded his mind, that he could sit in the midst of his imprisonment and say, I rejoice and I will rejoice? If I were to sum up the dynamic that's found in this text, it would be in the word perspective. Perspective. You see, Paul had perspective on what God was accomplishing through his trials. Paul saw the bigger picture of what God was doing 
And this is very helpful for us because our temptation in the midst of trials is to lose ourselves in the midst of what is immediate. To lose the bigger picture of how God is working. And it is when we lose perspective that we lose heart as well. On a football team, the offensive coordinator will station himself at the highest point of the football stadium because it's important in his role to see the entire field. And in a similar way, we as Christians, if we are to rejoice in our trials, it's important for us to see the bigger picture, to gain perspective on how God is working. James 1.3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James would say, pull back, Christian. See what God is accomplishing through your trials. And because you see the bigger picture, be equipped in your heart to rejoice. Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, The scriptures are continually pulling us back. The scriptures are continually bringing us to the highest point in the football stadium, so to speak. The scriptures are continually showing us the bigger picture because only in light of the bigger picture of what God is doing can we rejoice in the trials that we are enduring today. When we see in this passage, Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18, Paul gives us two perspectives that enabled his heart to rejoice. First, we're going to see Paul's perspective on his chains in verses 12 to 14. And second, we will see Paul's perspective on his critics in verses 15 to 18. First, let's look at Paul's perspective on his chains or his imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul begins in verse 12 by saying, I want you to know, brothers. It's a mild statement of emphasis. I want you to understand something. There's something I want to make clear. There's a potential misunderstanding that I want to correct. And the correction is this, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what would be the initial assumption here? Well, the initial assumption would be that the leading preacher and teacher of the gospel has been sidelined. Our franchise player in the church has been injured. We've lost our starting quarterback. Paul is the foremost preacher and church planner and missionary at the church of this t- at this time. And he is in prison. He's been silenced. In fact, his ministry might be over because this may result in his execution. The initial thought would be that we as a church are in trouble. What are we going to do? We don't have Paul anymore. We have once enjoyed a period of gospel expansion, but now we must move to a period of gospel maintenance. The initial assumption would be that the progress of the gospel has been hindered 
by Paul's imprisonment. And Paul is saying in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that the very opposite has occurred. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Through my imprisonment, God has accomplished a marvelous work, and he has worked through this trial to bring about the advance in the gospel. Now, camp the word gospel for a moment, euangelion. This word is used eight times in the book of Philippians. And the word means simply good news. The gospel is the good news. It is the joyful tidings. It is the glad announcement of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel is the good news that God has had mercy upon us as guilty sinners. He has seen us headed for our eternal destruction. He has sent a savior into the world to live the life we could never live, to die the death we should have died, and to rise triumphantly from the grave. This is the good news. This is the glad tidings of the Bible, and this is the message of the Bible. All the Old Testament points forward to the person and work of Christ. All the New Testament either unfolds or explains who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The Bible is the message of the good news, the gospel. The gospel narrowly defined focuses on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It focuses on his perfect life. It focuses on his sacrificial death. It focuses on his resurrection from the grave. And the gospel broadly defined encompasses all of the blessings and the benefits that flow to us through Christ's saving work on the cross. The gospel broadly defined focuses on all of the blessings of grace that God pours into the hearts and lives of guilty sinners, all because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. The gospel encompasses our justification in Christ, our adoption as children of God in Christ, the inheritance of eternal life that we have received because of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit who is given to us through Christ. All of these blessings come to us in and through who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so all of these blessings are the part of the good news, the joyful tidings of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the key point I want you to note here is that the New Testament testifies that the progress of the gospel, the the advancement of the gospel, the gospel moving forward in this world, the progress of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. The gospel is always advancing. The gospel is always moving forward. The gospel is always bearing fruit. You can shut up his messengers. You can persecute his teachers. You can throw them in prison, and all it will do is further the advance of the gospel. In church history, they persecuted the early church, and all the church did was scatter and then evangelize everywhere they went. In church history, they tried to kill messengers of the gospel, and the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church, and all it did is advance the cause of the gospel even further. You cannot stop the progress of the gospel. Read the book of Acts and you see that the gospel is continually moving forward. Jesus commissioned the church to preach the gospel and then we see the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and then from Samaria to the end of the earth. And that story is still continuing today. The gospel is unstoppable. Colossians 1 verse 5, the gospel, the good news has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. 
So here you have the key leader and preacher and teacher of the gospel in Rome confined for a period of two years. And Paul says, you know what? All this has done is advance the gospel. Do you think my imprisonment is a reason to be discouraged? I am telling you, brothers, no, it is a reason to rejoice because God has used this for the gospel to move forward and to continue to bear fruit. Now, how did this occur? Verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, this is truly amazing. There are some segments in society, some specific people groups, that if we were to reach these people groups for the, for the gospel, it would have a ripple effect throughout all of society. Now, I know we need to preach the gospel indiscriminately to everyone. I think you understand what I'm saying here. There are key people groups who have a great number of connections with the rest of society. And if you are to infiltrate that people group with the gospel, it would have an effect on many other people. For example, if we were to infiltrate state politicians with the gospel, it would have a ripple effect throughout all of California. If we were to reach senators or congressmen with the gospel, it might have a ripple effect throughout the entire nation. There are certain people groups who are strategic in society. And in Paul's day, there was one key people group that was much like this, and he calls it in verse 13, the imperial guard of Rome. The imperial guard, or the NASB has the praetorian guard of Rome. Now you say, who was the Praetorian Guard? They were basically the Navy SEALs of the Roman Empire. They were an elite military force in the Roman world, numbering about 9,000 soldiers. They were handpicked for their military excellence. They were given honor and pay beyond all other soldiers. They enjoyed great privileges. And in time, they became even a politically influential group because the emperor himself would court the favor of the Praetorian Guard in order to secure his political power. As time went on, they even picked the emperor. They were the kingmakers in Rome because no one could sustain their position as an emperor without the support of the military. And so this is a key group. This is a strategic group. If you reach this group, it have a ripple effect in all of Roman society. And the question would be, how do we reach them with the gospel? How do you infiltrate the Praetorian Guard with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now imagine if this is your assignment and you're in a church meeting and the subject of the church meeting is let's develop strategies for reaching the Praetorian Guard with the gospel. What kind of ideas would you have? What kind of ideas would I have? I mean, one of us might sit in that meeting and say, well, you know, maybe we'll try friendship evangelism. I'll try to befriend a praetorian guard today. Or someone else will say, let's try random evangelism. Let's like pass out tracts to the praetorian guard in, in Rome. How are we going to reach this group for the gospel? We'll try this plan on for size. Let's arrange for Paul 
the leading preacher and teacher of the gospel, to be imprisoned for his faith in Rome. Now that's going to be difficult because he's going to be in Jerusalem. So not only are we going to have to get him imprisoned, we're going to have to get him transported all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, where he can infiltrate the Praetorian Guard. Let's also, as part of this plan, arrange for a Roman guard of Praetorian soldiers to stand guard at Paul's residence in shifts. Arrange for them to rotate soldier to soldier, taking turns so that a period over two years, a great number of soldiers are exposed to Paul's ministry. Now, if we're going to arrange this, we're going to have to be very careful with the circumstances because we have to make Paul's imprisonment definitive enough so that he can't go anywhere for two years, but we also have to make it open enough so that he can have freedom to receive visitors and to teach and preach the gospel to anyone who comes. We also have to place the praetorian soldiers close enough to Paul so that they are forced to listen to every conversation Paul has and be exposed to the gospel in that way. If we can arrange all of the circumstances just like this, to place the right man in the right time in the right way for a period of two years, at the end of that time, the whole Praetorian Guard will have heard the testimony of the gospel. Now, do you like that plan? I think the church could have strategized for a dozen years and never come up with a plan as effective as this one. The church could have had meeting after meeting after meeting and never been able to put all the pieces together so that all the circumstances click in exactly the right way so that this specific group receives the gospel of Christ. But where man was limited in his understanding, God shows the brilliance of his sovereign plan. What we see in these circumstances is God sovereignly ordaining all of Paul's circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel. And what this means is that Paul's imprisonment was used by God to result in the whole praetorian guard receiving the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's testimony must have gone from soldier to soldier, eventually reaching the entire group. Through this key witness to the Praetorian Guard, the gospel must have gone to the upper echelons of Roman political power. Because Paul says, not only has the whole imperial guard received the message, but all the rest, which is a phrase referring to a wider sphere beyond the military, most likely moving to the positions that the, this guard would have influenced, which is those in power. You say, Dan, was this gospel witness effective? Did it win converts? Chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Those directly under the employ of the Roman emperor heard the gospel and some believed it. And catch this. None of this would have happened. None of it would have happened if Paul had not been imprisoned for his faith. 
if those trials had not been ordained as part of God's plan. You see, what Paul is saying in this text is, are you discouraged because of my trials? Are you downcast? Are you losing heart? Brothers and sisters, let's get some perspective. Let's get the bigger picture. Let's see how God is using these trials to accomplish his good. When we see how God is working, we'll rejoice. Verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, not only has this imprisonment resulted in my witness to the Praetorian Guard, but it has mobilized the entire church. Most of the brothers, the majority of the church, are now emboldened to speak the word of God. And because of my imprisonment, there has been a gospel witness moving forward in Rome that would not have happened apart from my trials. Do you think I'm a man feeling sorry for myself? Think again. I am focused on the blessings. I am focused on the outcome. I am focused on what God is accomplishing. And that is why I can say I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice because God is in control here. And he has a purpose in what he has ordained. Brothers and sisters, could I encourage you this morning that there are no accidents in life. Can I encourage you this morning that there is no such thing as a random occurrence? Nothing in our lives happens by chance. With all respect to Forrest Gump, life is not a box of chocolates and you just pick the one that you want to choose. Every detail of our lives down to the number of hairs on our head is sovereignly ordained by God. And catch this, God always, God always, God always has a purpose for what he ordains. Sometimes, God ordains trials in our lives to sanctify us. He wants to produce in us godly character. And that godly character cannot be produced apart from the trials that he ordains for our lives. Sometimes God ordains trials in our lives to humble us. He wants to wean us off our self-reliance and he wants us to be cast in dependence upon him and his grace. Sometimes we don't know the reason for our trials. Sometimes we're like Job, who suffered and was a blameless man. And God never explained to Job the reason for his trials. At the end of the book, God just said, Job, I'm God. There was a reason, but I'm not telling it to you. You just need to trust me. but we can trust that there's always a purpose. And the purpose is always good, and the purpose is always holy, and the purpose is always for God's glory, and the purpose is always for our good. Sometimes, in this text, our trials can be a 
a sovereign expression of God's grace because he wants to use us as tools for the greater progress of the gospel. Sometimes the trials that we endure today will be a means for the gospel to advance in ways that never would have occurred apart from these trials. To put it in this way, there may be elect out there, chosen ones of God before the foundation of the world, who are waiting to be saved. And God has ordained our present difficulties as part of his plan to reach them for the gospel. What the scriptures would encourage us is don't lose perspective, don't lose heart, see the bigger picture. And when you see the bigger picture, you will be equipped in your heart to rejoice. In verses 12 to 14, we see Paul's perspective on his chains. In verses 15 to 18, we see Paul's perspective on his critics. His critics. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now this is really sad. Uh, This is really painful. Paul not only faced hostility from outside the church, he faced criticism from within the church. We would expect persecution from the unbelieving world, but Paul also experienced criticism from other believers who were in the church. Verse 15, he says that these believers are preaching Christ. In other words, these are genuine believers. These are real believers. These are not false teachers. They are preaching Christ. They are not preaching Buddha. They are not preaching Muhammad. They are not preaching works righteousness. They are preaching Christ, Jesus, all he is, all that he has done. They are preaching the true gospel. These are real, genuine Christians who are heralding the true gospel of Christ. And yet Paul says that they are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. They are genuine believers preaching the true message, but they are preaching it from a bad heart. They are ministering out of wrong motivations. And you say, Dan, is, is it possible for a Christian to minister the gospel with a bad heart? My response to that is, every time I preach, I have to ask God to purify my motives. Because I know I can be preaching out of a selfish heart. It is very realistic that Christians would be ministering the true message of Christ, but doing so out of wrong motivations. Paul says these Christians were preaching Christ from envy. Envy, which is the grudging discontent in our hearts when we see the blessings poured upon another. Envy, which is the pain felt in the heart at the happiness or the excellence of others. Seeing something that someone has and wishing they didn't have it and wanting it for yourself. Proverbs 14.30 calls envy rottenness in the bones. And these believers were ministering out of envy. Sure, they were preaching Christ, but they were envious of Paul. What's the idea? They envied his popularity. They envied his success. They envied his giftedness. They envied how esteemed he was in the church. They envied at the marvelous ways that God had used him, the spiritual privileges that God had given to him. They saw the blessings that were given to Paul. 
and they had discontent in their hearts. And we learn from this text that ministry can be corrupted by a spirit of envy. You remember the disciples? They were always arguing over who was the greatest. They were always jockeying one another for spiritual position. Ministry in the church can become all about that. Who has the better position? Who has the greatest success? Who has the wider influence? Who has impacted more people? Who has the bigger name? Paul says that they were ministering out of envy and they were also ministering out of rivalry. Rivalry, a word which means strife or discord or contention. The word describes a competitive spirit that fights to have its own way. Rivalry is a spirit that desires the most prominent place in the church, that sees the church as a hierarchy, as a ladder to climb through spiritual service. I can earn promotions into a higher sphere of prestige. It's like Diotrephes in 3 John verse 9, where the text says, likes to put himself first. Or it's like John and James in Matthew chapter 20, who came to Jesus and asked for the two best seats in the kingdom because they wanted to be exalted over all the other disciples. And they wanted the place of prominence. James 3.14 warns us, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder at every vile practice. You see, these Christians in Rome, they were preaching Christ with wrong motives. Paul says, they wanted to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's hard to imagine, except it happens all the time in the church today. Ministers seeking to criticize one another. Servants of Christ seeking to bring down other people's ministry. Churches being filled with envy and rivalry toward other churches. They wanted to... Philipsis in the Greek, afflict me. The word basically means friction. It describes a picture of chains that are rubbing the hands and the feet, causing irritation. Paul says they were seeking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He doesn't tell us what they were saying, but we can imagine the types of things that might be insinuated by other ministers. Maybe they were saying, oh, Paul, oh, Paul, he's a washout. His ministry's over, you see. He's in prison. Or maybe they may have even insinuated that Paul's being disciplined by God because of his trials. And that's why he's being imprisoned. Or maybe they just use the opportunity to establish their own prominence in the church because of Paul's absence and failed to give him the proper respect as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Whatever it was, Paul says, they wanted to afflict me. It reminds me of my early days out of seminary. I came out of seminary wanting to be biblical, but my heart was corrupt because I wanted to be more biblical than the church down the street. And I would use my ministry of preaching to actually criticize others instead of simply positively setting forth the Word of God. 
There were critics in the church. There were Christians seeking to drag Paul down. I may just pause at this point, Cornerstone Bible Church, and just ask that the Lord would deliver us from this heart and ministry. Would that the Lord deliver us from envy and rivalry in our hearts as we serve Christ. May we repent of selfish ambition or pride in our hearts for serving Christ. And one of the ways that envy and rivalry manifests itself in our context in how we is in how we compare our church's ministry to the ministry of other local churches. And brothers and sisters, may I just say to us that that is folly? Because every local church is unique. Every local church has strengths and weaknesses. To compare the strengths of our ministry to the weaknesses of another ministry is just an expression of envy and rivalry in our hearts. And it ignores the fact that the body of Christ is diverse and God is doing a specific work in different ways in every local church. May God deliver us from these wrong motivations. May our hearts be what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 27, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. May that be our hearts. May that be our spirit, that we are simply douloi, slaves of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, we have only done what we ought to do. We have nothing to boast in except for what Christ has accomplished through us. Brothers and sisters, may we ask the Lord to purify our hearts so that we do not preach the true message in a false way. And let us not be deluded into thinking that just because there is fruitfulness in our ministry, that our hearts are automatically correct because God can use anyone to preach his message. In the Old Testament, God used a donkey to preach his message. May we ask the Lord to give us hearts of humility and servanthood, that our ministry may not be a means to exalt ourselves in pride. Verse 15, Paul says, others preach Christ from goodwill. And that's encouraging. You know, you don't have to have wrong motives. You don't have to have corrupt intentions. You don't have to preach Christ out of rivalry and envy. You can preach Christ from goodwill, from eudokion in the Greek, good motives, pure motives, a a genuine desire to help and to serve others. Verse 16, he says, the latter do it out of love. You know, you can preach Christ out of love. You can have the right heart and just desire to love Christ and to love people and to love the church and to love the lost. And that's why you do what you do. He says, the latter do it out of love because they are knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They acknowledge the unique place that God has placed me in service for Christ. So here's the bottom line. You You have a bunch of people in Rome, a bunch of Christians in Rome who are preaching Christ. Paul's in prison and he's just watching all this happen. And there are some preaching Christ out of out of bad motives. They're seeking to criticize Paul and to bring him down. And there's some preaching Christ out of good motives. They're seeking to love Paul, esteem Paul, love the church, bless the church. There are some who are seeking to discourage Paul, to afflict him, to cause him pain. 
out of their rival hearts who are seeking to establish a place of prominence because of his absence. And there are some who are simply seeking to honor and to esteem the gospel and who are recognizing that Paul's in prison. We need to respect what God is doing in his life. There are some who are preaching Christ for the sake of self and there are some who are preaching Christ for the sake of love. And Paul stands back and is watching all of this happen. And what is his analysis of the situation? What is his conclusion as he surveys the scene? He tells us in verse 18. He says, what then? Meaning, what does it matter? So what? What is my conclusion to the situation? Here's my response. Only that, this is the only thing I have to say. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know what Paul says at the end of it all? He says, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if they're preaching Christ to hurt me. It doesn't matter if they're preaching Christ to help me. It doesn't matter if their hearts are to discourage me. It doesn't matter if their hearts are to cause me joy. I don't care if they're preaching Christ in order to drag me down and drag my name through the mud, and I don't care if they're preaching Christ in order to honor and to esteem and to exalt me. It doesn't matter. The only thing I have to say is that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. All I care about is that they're preaching Christ. That's all. Christ is being proclaimed. The gospel is moving forward. His name is being exalted. And the reason I can rejoice And brothers and sisters, listen to me here, because this is so key. What Paul is saying is that the real issue here is that I am not important. It's not about me. It's about Christ. What is important is the message of Christ. What is not important is the messenger. What is important is the Savior and His work. What is not important is the servant and what happens to Him. I rejoice because they are preaching Christ. And as long as Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. And because of Paul's perspective, What could have become an occasion for bitterness and anger now becomes an occasion for joy and encouragement. 
In the end, the message of Christ was all Paul cared about. He didn't care about himself. He didn't care if he was freed or he didn't care if he stayed in prison. He didn't care if he was put to death. He didn't care if he was allowed to live. He didn't care if he was in comfort. He didn't care if he was confined. All he cared about was what is happening to the message of Christ. And as long as that was moving forward, he says, I rejoice. The man had perspective. He saw the bigger picture. And as we wrap up the teaching that is found in this text, I want you to see that though there are two perspectives that are found in this passage, Paul's perspective on his chains, Paul's perspective on his critics, those two perspectives are really summed up or wrapped up in one greater perspective that Paul had on life. And the greater perspective is this, Paul's perspective of Christ. It was how Paul viewed Christ that was the underlying foundation that allowed him to view all of his trials in the proper light. And if you're wondering what was Paul's perspective on Christ, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ is Christ. That was the bottom line for Paul. He says, I live for Jesus Christ. All that matters to me is Christ. My life is summed up in Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters to me but my relationship with him. Nothing else matters but that he is exalted, he is proclaimed, he is honored. The people come to know him. I live my life to love Christ. I live my life to know Christ. I live my life to praise Christ. I live my life to receive love from Christ. I live my life for Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my King. He is my Shepherd. He has loved me with an everlasting love. He has died for me on the cross to save me from my sins. There's nothing else that matters to me but Christ. He is my surpassing joy. He is my greatest treasure. He is the pearl of great price. My life is Christ. It is Christ. It is nothing but Christ. It is not Christ plus my comforts. It is not Christ plus my agenda. It is not Christ plus people respecting me in the church. It is not Christ plus I live or die. It is only Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's all. And because Paul had that perspective on who Jesus is, because he saw that Jesus was the center and the circumference of his life, he could look at all the other trials in his life and he could say, joy, joy, nothing but joy, because it doesn't matter what happens to me. All that matters is what happens to Christ, and Christ is being proclaimed, and Christ is being exalted, and you cannot stop the progress of the gospel, and therefore, I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. 
because all that matters to me is Christ. Brothers and sisters, may that be our heart as well. May we say with Paul, for me, for me, to live is Christ. That there is nothing else that matters except for him. He is my greatest joy, my greatest possession. And as long as I have him, I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. Let's bow in prayer together. Let's close our time. Oh, Father, thank you for your word and for how it shepherds our hearts. How we get lost in our trials and see only what is in front of us. And how your word shepherds us to see the bigger picture. We know that the, the greatest thing that we need to see is who Jesus is and what he has done. Lord, help each one of us to put aside our agendas, to put aside our rights, our preferences, our desires. And Lord, may we only have this one agenda, and that is to exalt Christ. May Christ be all for us, O oh Lord. Everything we need, everything we have, may he be enough for us that we would say with Paul that we rejoice. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Christ's name.